Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the Canon Things Podcast. I want to start things off a little bit different today, and I want to start off with a quote. This comes from Mark Twain. He says, Whenever you find yourself on the side of the majority, it is time to pause and reflect. Our guest for today's episode is currently writing a graphic novel. His name is Red Kaiman. It's called King Firepower. You can check it out on kingfirepower.net, and he's got the first four pages on there, so you can check it out. The first comic is supposed to drop in fall of 2020, so he's just doing some promotion here coming on my show. And in today's episode, we're going to talk about... In today's episode, we're going to start off just talking about this book called The True Believer. It was written by an American philosopher, Eric Hoffer, and this book is really good. It basically talks about what drives the mind of a fanatic and the dynamics of mass movement. The True Believer is a landmark in the field of social psychology and even more relevant today than ever before in history. It's called a brilliant and original inquiry and a genuine contribution to our social thought. It's a really good book basically just talking about why people join social movements and how they come about in the first place. Red, welcome to the show. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, I've been enjoying uh, listening to some of your episodes. Oh, good. Which ones have you listened to so far? I was listening to that one you're talking about Maslow's hierarchy of needs. I thought that was that was kind of cool, and I think that's kind of very similar to what we're talking about. So, what we're going to discuss is about Eric Offer's True Believer, which is about how mass movements begin, how political ideas sort of take root, how sort of ideas germinate into into groups. Um, Eric Offer, I believe, was hired after World War II to sort of deconstruct, you know, how Nazism, how communism, how ideas like that, how they come to fruition. And the basic thesis of his book um, really, uh, first it examines two archetypes. One archetype is called the man of words, which is the person creating the book, the sort of leader who has a philosophy. And the second type is sort of the fanatics, the ones who follow um, the ideas of the man of words. You know, since this is a philosophy podcast, I thought it'd be kind of cool to take a little step back, a sort of meta step back and kind of see that. Um, yeah, definitely. definitely. So how does a person become a fanatic? Well, basically, anytime there's some sort of ideology that sort of feeds into a person's purpose, um, Eric Hoffer's whole thing was that Whenever there is a what he calls a creation of the new poor, that is people that have been recently economically displaced, sort of like what we're seeing right now, people try to search for ideology, they try to search for you know, a reason to blame, as well as a purpose in, when times are hard. And Yeah, that makes you know, sense. Yeah, it was, it was very interesting. He tried to talk about how you know, the communists and the Nazis, a lot of times, some people, when they become fanatics, they, they switch sides on a weekly basis, you know, <laughs> which is, is you know, kind of interesting horseshoe theory wise, because if you see some crazy people on the Internet, it just, you know, you see weird things. But um, he also had a uh, metaphor, you know, when uh, Jesus's disciple Paul, before he was Paul, who was a huge supporter of Christianity, he was Saul, who was a huge opponent of Christianity. And Hoffer's sort of belief was that the sort of the energy of people is what you need to look at sometimes more than ideology, which I think is kind of a cool thing to look at. Because, you know, I do know I do know people who, you know, first they were really like this. They said there is no God. There is no da 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 da. And then they go then they go super religious. And it's it's scary because sometimes they'll try to, uh, you know, rope you into whatever they're working on. Um, you know, I knew somebody who, you know, one week he didn't know what he wanted to do with his life. And then the next week he wanted to join the military. He wanted me to go with him. And I'm like, nah, dude, I knew who you were a week ago. I'm not going to just, you know, you have this whirlwind, uh, thing you want to get into. I'm not gonna, you know, I, you know, the risk assessment isn't there. I think the reason that that happens is because people, you have a certain amount of energy that you can spend on doing things every day. And if you are like really bored you're just going to start putting all your energy into like a really a really evolutionary cause interesting yeah because i think it talks a little bit about that in the book where he somewhere i'm not sure but he talks about how the people who do become fanatics and the people who join like these revolutionary causes are the people who are bored they're not just people who are poor they're just people who are bored And I think it's kind of interesting because when I was younger, right, you know, you're a kid, you grow up, you don't like whatever the pop culture figure is at the time, right? 
So, you know, remember kids used to hate Justin Bieber or they used to hate Paris Hilton. And you would think to yourself, man, if I was just a punk rocker, metalhead, da da da, I would stop them, blah, 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 blah. But the truth is, if you look at your Paris Hilton types, you know, what feeds them isn't them just being them. What feeds them is their followers. So if you really hated Paris Hilton, you would create a Kim Kardashian. That would that would be what destroyed them. You know what I mean? So when you look at ideology, you don't do something that's so 180 diametrically opposed sometimes. Sometimes you want to go 30 degrees to the, you know, the side and just sort of suck out, you know, the fan base that way. You know, it's, it's right. just figuring out how people think is is very interesting when you, you know, try well, it's, to. It's kind of like making counterculture to what's currently going on, because even with. Like, in a way, yeah. Yeah. Because even when um, Bernie Sanders was running for president, he was almost like the anti-Trump. Yeah. But it, in a weird way, he was like like the left version of Trump in a weird way, like this, yeah. this sort of like the things he was kind of referring to. And like his kind of people yeah. who want that political revolution were going behind Bernie, who also those kind of that type of people, but they were on the right wing were the ones behind Trump because they wanted somebody who wasn't a career politician to like change and fix everything, fix all their problems. Yeah. yeah. And it's just sort of interesting because you look at like what the last, I don't know, 12 years of politics and there's always been that sort of need, whether it was, you know, Ron Paul or Obama or something like that. You know, there's always this mass movement that's like in need of change. So it, it is it is interesting to see how people think about that kind of. Thing. So what I don't really know exactly, but when fascism, because I know that a lot of this book talks about fascism and communism. Is because communism came out with Marx, but like who invented fascism? I know fascism. I mean, it was one of those weird ideologies. I think it started in like the nineteen. I'm, I'm gonna probably gonna be wrong about this, but I want to say like the 1920s because they were trying to they were trying to find something they called like the third position, and it's sort of a weird because it's not like a hundred percent like a total like they want to say that the state and like the faith and everything is together. Um, and it's, you know, there, there are similarities, again, in terms of horseshoe theory, I mean, fascism and communism, is, you sort of get a very similar end result. Right. Um, and, and in a weird way, like, if you look at what Mussolini said he wanted to do, what Mussolini ended up doing, like, his implementation of whatever he was doing wasn't very effective at all. So, I mean, in terms of ideologies, it's like, whatever. Um, but I know for a fact, you know, I think Mussolini used to be a socialist before he was a fascist. So again, it's that same sort of energy. I mean, Karl Marx never had a real job. His father owned a winery, you know, and he was sort of lecturing about labor, but it's, you know, there's sort of, you kind of want someone who's done it. You know what I mean? Right. So it all sort of comes from the same similar place, a sense of belonging, a sense of purpose. Um, I remember there, there's a viral clip online where like Richard Nixon, after he resigns the presidency, he, he goes on this whole thing about, you know, the most miserable people in the world are the ones in Palm Beach and Palm Springs and these people who they drink too much. They have no purpose. They have a whole bunch of money, but they're miserable. And, you know, a lot of people, they want to be wealthy, but if there's no purpose in their life. You know, it's it's miserable. And his whole thing was he want his entire life. He wanted to be president. And, you know, a lot of people want him to go to jail and da da da. He's like, you know what, maybe mm -hmm. I should have been punished more, blah, blah, blah. But you know what, it's it's all sort of the same. Like his purpose in life was done. And it was a very interesting thing to see, you know what I mean? That sometimes purpose might be the biggest thing in life. And it's kind of interesting, to, you know, to, to measure that, to see that. Well, definitely, because I think a lot of people that when you're depressed or you're just going through a hard time it can be from lack of purpose and lack of having things to do yes. and when i i definitely think that a big driver of just life and trying to achieve your goals is like the purpose of life is to seek fulfillment if you ask like if you look at a lot of those business books or like those inspiring like lecture books or mo like books about philosophy or whatever it kind of comes down to that thought of your entire purpose of life is to just find things that you love and then be fulfilled in that. So I imagine that once you, if you work your whole to become a president and then you do that, then it's like, well, what do I do now? You're probably just done. Yeah. I, I do think that's like a lot of graduate students get depression because of that. 
you know, I know a lot of people um, get get depressed because of that. Um, I was actually reading a book. It's called The Overachievement. I forgot who the uh, writer was, but his whole thing was that, you know, goals are good, but, you know, you should go beyond the goals. His whole thing was, you know, the dream isn't just a goal. The dream is a feeling, a feeling of fulfillment. And that's something you should try to obtain. And I thought that was very uh, enlightening. Yeah, definitely. Because it's it's more than just seeking goals and like achieving in numbers. It's about that inner peace and that inner, like almost getting in the flow state. Because when you're in the flow state, that's when everything kind of makes sense for a lot of people. That's how an artist could be dirt poor his entire life, but still have a really happy and fulfilled life. Oh, definitely. I think it's, you know, I think I was trying to find it before I got here. There's a French philosopher. I couldn't find him on Google, but his whole thing, he had a bunch of alternatives to the stress of reality. His whole thing was, you know, pursue bohemianism, don't pursue consumerism. You know, it's better to make things necessarily than just buying things. That's more. Yeah, so that makes sense. Yeah, and he was French. French. He was he was French. I forgot. I was I was trying to find what it was. I couldn't find him. But mm -hmm. yeah, I just I just remember that part very okay. specifically. Um. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, when going back to kind of what we were talking about, about joining large social movements, yeah. uh, I'm just kind of thinking about back in the 60s and 70s when all the young kids, like I guess the boomers when they were young, they hated the the society that their parents had set up and they didn't accept it. So they pushed really hard against it and they became, you know, like the hippie movement and everything. And then that just kind of like fell apart because we don't have... All that came out of that, at least like nowadays, we we can't buy drugs legally, like the, the drugs that they had back then. And yeah. it's kind of almost like a bumper sticker at this point. Oh, yeah. I think that was, you know, one of the biggest complaints is that sometimes people feel like any time they try to create something cool in, in this country and, and just in the world in general, it's, it gets commercialized very easily. But I think, you know, that's that's a really good example of the mass movement. Because, you know, everyone started out very open-minded, right? But there wasn't any sort of regulation, which is what was a good idea, what was a bad idea. You know, and then you have things like Altamont, where people got stabbed. You know, they had this huge rock concert, and you know, there was a lot of violence in that. You know, and people who were trying to find meaning, you know, ended up getting suckered into Charles Manson or whatever religious thing. And, you know, people... Right, because that was like the start of a bunch of big cults in the 60s yeah, and 70s. Yeah, yeah. Because people just wanted to be... Well, I mean, they just wanted to be open-minded, so they weren't very critical. They were trying it, but then, you know, people took advantage of that, you know? Yeah. And I think, I think the biggest thing to take away from the 60s is that you can still take the responsibilities of adulthood, but you just have to do it in your own image, in your own way. They were so obsessed with not being their parents that they would rather ruin their life, you know? Yeah. yeah. So... <clears throat> I think, you know, you don't have to, you know, dismiss responsibility, but just doing it, doing it your own way. I think that's, that's the biggest takeaway because, you know, for every guy who joined a cult, there was a Steve Jobs, you know what I mean? Because Steve was part of that. His ability to be open-minded led him to create Apple and things like that. And it's, it's weird because there's a, have you ever seen a Pirates of Silicon Valley? I haven't. Okay. So it was about Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak in the, the beginning of creating Apple and first, Steve is a very, again, it, it actually ties into this because Steve was a very hippie guy and he hated IBM. IBM was the devil. You know, the international business machine, it was about conformity, da, da, da. And he created Apple personal computers because he wanted you to be an individual, to live your life and connect with the world and everybody be together. But then they got to a point where first he shaves his beard, he puts a business suit on. And uh, uh, Wozniak goes, Steve, you know, you used to hate working as much as your parents. Now we're working 90 hour weeks. We're working way more than our parents ever did. And that's that's the book. That's, you know, a lot of times they want to change these systems, but then they make the system more, uh, you know, they scale it up even more than what, what they wanted to intentionally. So I think that's a very, you know, that's, in, in a weird way, it's a good example because, I mean, yeah. that's kind of what happened. Well, it's almost like they're changing the, the system and they're reforming it in a good way instead of just like going into complete revolution. Because imagine all the brain power that went behind like those 60s revolutions, if they had put those into maybe, I don't want to say better causes, but, you know, like more productive things, how much more innovation would we have had? 
But I mean, I'm I'm a little cynical about it. Like, have you have you ever heard of uh, Project Mockingbird? I haven't. Okay, so basically, I think it was Gloria Steinem, and she was a huge feminist in the '70s. And it turns out she was working with the CIA, and the CIA actually had a lot of informants in these student groups. That oh. their whole thing was divide everybody up as much as you can. You know, um, if, if, you know, if, if African-Americans wanted to have their rights, they would say, well, what about women? Or you, this leader, it was mm. bad to his, and then it causes so much division and chaos that a real true system, uh, a real true movement got divided from them. And there's, you know, a whole bunch of other parts of it, you know, dismantling things. Um, you know, a lot of these groups, you know, once drugs got involved, the whole thing fell apart. So, yeah, there was a lot of external forces um, because of that. So it's just kind of crazy to see. Yeah, I do. I do agree with what you're saying. You know, the, you know there's a lot of loss of potential. But it's kind of sad to see, you know, the divisions that occurred because of it. That's crazy. The CIA went in and like broke up all these groups. They were trying to just do good things. Well, I mean, that's it's definitely, you know, when people come to power like that, you know, and things get hard. It, it's easily to manipulate. You know, and you say things like, you know, I'm more, you know, oppressed than you are and people get jealous. And, you know, especially if you're living off of donations and one guy gets more donations than the other one, you know, and a lot of, you know, fighting occurs. What's crazy, that still happens today because like on Twitter, everybody's fighting each other and they all kind of have like the same mindset, like they all want feminism, they all want like less racism in the country and they all want like these things that they're all together but they yeah. fight over like they nitpick over the dumbest little things and they're always fighting each other and it's just such a waste of time mm -hmm. and it's weird because they don't even know that they're participating in something that was socially engineered against them you know it's that that's done on purpose you know and that that's society at large it's like we all have the same problems it's like for example whatever happened to occupy wall street you know that's oh a, yeah that's true because yeah, that was going on for like a couple months and then it just disappeared. Yeah. yeah. And then you're like, oh, OK, what what happened? What happened after that? And to me, I think right now, I think the left really just needs someone who isn't who can talk to, you know, who knows normal. You know, you know what I mean? Like people who have jobs or whatever, you know, what I mean? there just seems to be a disconnect. You know, yeah. I just. I just I see it in a in a broader way. And well, it's because when you go to the right, it's it's all unified by religion, and so it's a lot easier to kind of unify everybody because you're like, well, we all believe in Jesus, even though they're all a bunch of, I mean, not a bunch of, but like some of them are definitely mm -hmm. not following the teachings of Jesus, but mm -hmm. they all have that like common basis, and then they just kind of accept what each other does. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's a sort of a, a thing going on there. And I think, you know, the, the, the themes of forgiveness, you know, it, it, it does work in, in when it's applicable that. Uh -huh. Yeah. Um, so I, I don't, I guess I do bring up politics a lot just because that's kind of what I, I don't know, I focus on a bit. But when I, what I've been kind of noticing is that politics over the last couple of years has become much, much more, um, I almost want to say life and death for some people. Like, they'll freak out every time that you say something that they don't agree with. Or, like, when Trump got elected, like, all those people were crying in the streets. And I think that's mm -hmm. because we're kind of, like, losing religion as a society. We're becoming more atheist and more, I guess, spiritual. And in that, people are spending that time that they normally would have spent on religion in politics or in other causes that sometimes they're good and sometimes bad. Oh, definitely. Because I, I think I think politics has filled that vacuum that religion used to take. Right. And I think, you know, somebody made a comment like, you know, Karl Marx once said religion is the opiate of the masses. But as religion is lessening, you know, all this, there's now an opioid epidemic. So now opioid is the opiate of the masses. And That's crazy. Yeah. You have, you have to look at those one of those weird things. It's like, yeah, there were issues back then, but was this worth the trade-off? And to me, I think, you know, after reading The True Believer by Eric Hoffer, you realize the goal of every revolution, if every revolution was successful, the successful goal would be really more efficient bureaucracy. 
right? You have a problem, the government or whoever can handle it easier. And right. Or the free market. Well, I mean, whatever, yeah, whatever people yeah. want. Yeah. yeah. So I, I feel like you read Eric Hoffer's True Believer, you, you leave thinking logistics is the sort of the solution to people's problems in a weird way, in a, in a sort of a nuanced way. Because, you know, being a revolutionary is cool and stuff. But, you know, at the end of the day, you know, you're going to have to be a plumber, you're going to have to be a carpenter. And some people who talk about revolution, they don't want to do that. It bores them. But it's like, no, this is sort of the and then the one thing about this epidemic, you know, this pandemic, is that it really made people appreciate the sort of bedrock of our society, you know, the people who do make sure things are running. So it's, it's kind of a weird eye opening thing. It's definitely a lot easier. To, I mean, just to go on something specific to if we were to talk about healthcare, because this is kind of the thing that people are talking about a lot right now, they want universal free healthcare. And that's like a very revolutionary idea to most Americans. And if imagine if a presidential candidate or they just said, like, let's get rid of our administrators, like, let's fix it, let's regulate the insurance companies better, like, let's make changes that'll actually work and not just completely rewrite the system because you can't just destroy you know a hundred years worth of the system that we built overnight you have to just make subtle changes and write like make the bureaucracy a little bit more efficient mm -hmm. and i know he's that guy's whoever that person will be he, he will be public enemy number one so that that is you know the reality of the situation um, yeah because so many people make so much money off their current healthcare system completely and those are the ones that are holding the whole thing in place. Um, but in terms of solutions, you know, I do know physicians, they're talking about, you know, having medical records on the blockchain. They are talking about, you know, telemedicine. This epidemic has increased telemedicine. I think that might be a more practical solution. Again, everything, you know, all the solutions are very logistics based. So I think that's something to look at into the future. It's a very complicated problem, but, you know, that that would be where I would go. Right. And you can definitely save a lot of money there because if you're going to do, for example, therapy, you can just do that over the phone right now. And that's going to save you a lot of overhead. Oh, completely. Completely. What other needs or what other voids are being filled? Like, since people don't have religion anymore, what else are people spending time on? Well, I think, you know, consumption, I think, you know, we talked about mass media, we talked to, uh, you showed me that video where you said that Disney is a religion. I think that may, that is uh, click, click, checking off a lot of boxes. <laughs> yeah. Because fandoms do go very crazy over religion, or excuse me, over Disney. So it is, it is something crazy to see. Yeah, I, uh, so I'm actually from Utah and a lot of, it's kind of got this weird culture out here with a lot of Mormons, but mm -hmm. um they're basically all obsessed with Disney from a young age, and they keep that obsession through adulthood. A lot of people do. So I know a lot of adults who will literally sit down and watch Disney movies all the time. Really? Yeah. That's like, I, even in college, there would be people who would sit down, like, on dates and stuff and, like, go to Disney movies. And you're like, what are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, wow. So, okay. So now... In, in your experience, does the Mormon community, do they have issues with where Disney is going? Like, do you see a lot of that going on as well? I'm just that, that I'm just interested. Um, what do you mean? Like with China and stuff? Um, not so much that, but I, I feel like lately, um, you know, Disney has been more open and more supporting of the LGBT community. Is that something you've seen pop up where people have issues with? Um, the LDS church still struggles with accepting like gay people and yeah. i i don't know if i mean most people are okay with it so i don't think it's a big deal plus disney is not like exactly the best company for having that kind of representation because even in that new star wars movie they had that lesbian kiss at the very end that was edited out like they don't really care about that cause because they just basically got rid of it the second anybody said that they didn't like it yeah, well, I mean, it's it's because they edited it out in like Singapore and like other countries right. that were following up on it. So it is a very insincere, revolutionary thing going on. Right, because if if you really cared about it, you would just say, "Well, screw you, Singapore. We're not going to show the movie here, or mm -hmm. you're just going to have to accept this because you guys are the one that's wrong, not us." Mm -hmm. Okay. Because you're basically validating them if you don't just 
kind of tell them off. Yeah. Um, but it, other stuff, I don't know. I think a lot of it just comes from the fact that a lot of us or a lot of Mormons, they grew up um, watching a lot of Disney movies. And Disney does have a lot of great things about it, especially some of the older movies like back in the early 2000s, the 90s, because every character when during video that talks about Disney is being like each character is kind of a prophet within that religion and they all have things that they talk about and you can definitely get behind that. Um, I don't know exactly why it's like Disney is the thing that Mormons get behind, but it's kind of fascinating because it, a lot of people here are very obsessed with it, even as adults. Interesting. I just remember I was getting in an argument with somebody and somebody was trying to say that all the greatest artists ever were Catholic. And he's like, Michelangelo is Catholic and Da Vinci and da da da. Who is the Protestant artist? And I'm like, well, it's got to be Walt Disney. And it's like something people forget about. So maybe that could be part of it. But yeah, that is kind of interesting. Oh, yeah, for sure. I, I don't know why you would try to argue that all the artists were Catholic. I mean, there's been tons of great artists just from all across the world. For well, I feel like, time. I feel like. Um, a lot of Catholics, their big thing is they argue about the aesthetics and, and their belief, you know, seeing the Sistine Chapel, seeing all those, um, you know, the architecture, it, it's beauty. And they say that beauty is, you know, showing God's creation. And they're trying to say that a lot of Protestant churches, you know, you go to church, it feels like you're in a prison. And their whole thing was, why is this thing that's supposed to be so spiritual to you? Why do you make it look yeah. so bad? So that was kind of their argument. Well, I mean, that's not really fair because the Catholic Church has thousands of years on top of the Protestants, plus like billions of dollars to work with. Definitely. But I feel like, you know, and everybody, this is the part where everyone brings up like Joel Olstein's mansion and all oh, the yeah. goofiness and the, all the, the glass mega churches. Th- those, those are always the target of ridicule. It's like, look at this. You mean, yeah, this? I mean, those, those like telechurches or whatever, the, the big ones, those are just, I mean, I'm not exactly a big fan of all religion, but specifically mm-hmm. those, those are like the exact problem with modern religion right there. <laughs> yeah. So I mean, it's like capitalist good. religion. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So I think, you know, but the idea of bringing aesthetics back to religion, I think that's kind of an interesting concept to sort of return to. So I think that's, you know, they, they're, they're bringing interesting points. It's like the whole, if I could take like 50% of what they're saying and apply it in a good way, I'll take it. Right. Yeah, definitely. Well, and people can find solace and belief in anything. And if you just take bits and pieces and you make that work for you, that's all right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. That'd be kind of cool. I, like I think religion, I mean, if you be a good person through your religion mm-hmm. and you don't go join some dumb revolution or cult or something, mm-hmm. then that's probably a good thing. Definitely. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but I, I think you know we, everyone has to understand that people also want to belong. It's it's a matter of faith. It's a matter of emotion, and people try to you know take that part out of it. You know, if you're someone like Neil deGrasse Tyson, you go to universities, everybody loves you, and you go, why do people join religious groups? I don't get it. Ah uh, ha ha. It's, I feel like you're gonna. It doesn't really help your cause when you do that necessarily. No, because you're just alienating people. Yeah. So I think, you know, I think the psychology of religion and sort of, you know, just accepting it in, in a weird way. Yeah, I think that can, that can work with a lot of people. Yeah, and I think one of the things that kind of happens when you lose your religion, especially if you leave, like if you were started in religion and then you left it, is mm-hmm. that you have like this giant void in your life. And yes. that's what you could fill with like politics or Disney or, I don't yeah. know, drugs. Yeah, and I think... That, that can be, you know, and, and, and you wonder at, at, at the end of it, instead of, you know, just doing that, maybe it's about reforming, you know, maybe it's about, okay, you had a pastor who lied. Maybe it, the answer isn't leaving. It's, you know, getting rid of that pastor and placing with someone who's not lying. I don't know. It's just, it's one of those things where, you know, if certain, you know, there might be other, other solutions to it, but it's, it's an interesting thing to see nonetheless. Yeah. Because <clears throat> again, with revolution, you know, we have this, we had this notion in the beginning of, you know, 2000s, like, oh, these, these tyrants are evil. We got to remove these tyrants and everything will be okay, you know. And I think we sort of saw the reality of it, which was, you know, some, some cultures needed a leader to sort of rally behind. 
And, you know, that's why you have these power vacuums in the Middle East. And it was kind of interesting because I kind of, I don't know why I saw parallels with this in the Star Wars movies, you know, because it's like, oh, another sequel in the desert. Oh, okay. You know what I mean? But I think, <laughs> yeah. I think at this time, you know, because I was, I was talking with somebody about the sequels and I was like, you know what? I thought it would be cool if you talked about being a Sith Lord as an idea and have it sort of be about killing the idea. Because you can fight as many wars as you want and as many different planets as you want, but if the idea is there, you know, it's it's always going to be causing a problem. So I thought that was something I thought would be more interesting to talk about, sort of, you know, destroying an idea. I think that's really gets to the root of it. But you have to understand it, because a lot of times when, when the Iraq War happened, when Afghanistan happened, you had all these bureaucrats, you had all these people you know, they had their own ideas in their head, these static models in their head. And once they got to the sandbox, you know, every, all that kind of went out the window. They were they were too stubborn to, to make their changes, you know. So I, I do think it's kind of a weird thing now. Sometimes you have to see tyranny and just sort of, you know, nudge it instead of, you know, removing it completely. Yeah, and there's this weird idea that people are inherently trying to do things for evil, especially like when people become dictators of a country or whatever especially when there's a big power vacuum in a country. I think that most of those leaders are just trying to help. They don't, they don't deserve to just be overrun. Of course, I, also those terrorist groups that all come out of the Middle East, they're all funded by the U.S. It's like the U.S. is purposely creating instability in most of the world. Because look at this South America. Every single time that they would have a political revolution, an, a leader would come in, the U.S. would topple it, and then there would be a power vacuum, and it would happen all over again. Oh, yeah. And, and that's been happening for years. So it's just been a crazy thing to see. Yeah. Um, but we did do a good job, or at least what you had mentioned in, when we were talking about how Doug, Douglas MacArthur had left Emperor Hirohito alive after World War II to like maintain the stability of Japan. And that's what allowed them to become such a great country after the war. Well, I think it's very interesting because before World War II even happened, like, I guess when MacArthur was in his 20s, he went on this tour of, like, all of Asia and India and China. And what he didn't realize at the time is that he gained insights into how, you know, Asia sort of operates. And it was something that was so, like, ahead of his time because the average, like, leaders would have no idea. And, you know, when MacArthur, you know, he was basically in charge of Japan after the war. You know, I think now they call him, what do they call him? Shogun, the Gaijin Shogun or something like that, the foreign, yeah. the foreign leader. So he was in charge and he kind of understood the Japanese in a way that other military leaders really didn't. Um, so he knew, he's, and he, when he realized that, <clears throat> you know, Hirohito was supposed to be this god. He was supposed to be this god. You were supposed to die for your god. And when he finally saw Hirohito and he realized he was just this guy and he wasn't even really in charge of the military operations, he wasn't really in charge of anything. And he was like, you know what, they're not going to listen to us if we do something to him. You know, he really didn't do anything. It's not like Napoleon. He's not going to rally the troops and we're going to have to fight him again. Let's just, you know, let him be, be here and sort of, you know, allow the, the country to sort of um, transition back into peacetime. And it's, it's very interesting how so many yeah. like traditions that people frown on about Japan were actually started during after the Second World War. You know, like the Japanese didn't start eating whales until MacArthur said they should start doing that because everyone was starving. Just just little things like that. Wait, really? Yeah. I didn't know that they started eating whales after the war. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, that was that was a bigger thing because everyone was starving, and that was like, no, we got to start doing. And the thing about Japan is that. It's so based on tradition and respecting your elders, like the idea of like changing things all the time that doesn't really happen. That's why it's so hard for them to stop. You know, it's, it's not it's not like the U.S. Well, I mean, they definitely have a completely different culture because I remember the story about how they had after the war had concluded, there were still like little squads of Japanese soldiers out in like various islands, like in the Philippines, and they yeah. were still killing civilians. And they didn't yeah. realize that the war was over and they wouldn't. So like they would drop over airplanes, like they would drop leaflets saying that the war ended and like they'd give them newspapers and stuff, but they wouldn't believe it unless their commanding officer actually went to them and told them that the war was over. So there was one dude who was like out in this random island. I can't remember which one for like 30 years. He was out there till like the seventies. And then his commanding officer heard that he was like still out there killing people flew out to this island, told him that the war was over, and then, like, the dude 
went back and I just can't imagine like you have to be so indoctrinated and fully believe in in this cause because I can't imagine just like hunkering down on an island for 30 years <laughs> thinking that you're doing a good job. <laughs> it, is, it is kind of an interesting thing to, to think about. Yeah, but it's, it's definitely, I mean, that's, that's the power of belief, I guess. Yeah. Well, that, I mean, that shows just the motivation, I guess, behind a lot of these other causes. I mean, even like the anti-communist movement in America during the 70s, when all these people believed that communism was like truly the devil, even right. when you just look back now, you're like, they're just trying to do their thing. Like, they're just trying to survive as well. But they flipped out about it. And then basically, I mean, there are still people to this day who believe that communism is like literally the devil. <laughs> Uh, yeah, yeah. I think um, is it is kind of crazy that oh, not only that, especially with like politics and stuff, where they try to demonize people. Like, I always think it has the opposite effect. Like, you don't want to demonize your opponent necessarily, as more as trying to portray them as being foolish. I, it's, it's such an interesting thing to see how, how people believe in certain things. It is definitely um, cool and interesting. But um, to, to go back to what I was saying, I, I feel like like with military leaders though, like MacArthur was one of them. Uh, Doug, uh, Norman Schwarzkopf was another one. He was the commander of Desert Storm, and Schwarzkopf grew up in Iran, so he understood certain things that like a lot of people didn't um, regarding how you know the Iraqis kind of what their belief system was, and I think that is what made Desert Storm a lot more successful than than the second time around necessarily. Is just sort of understanding you know, what, who it is you're dealing with. And I think that's such an interesting, intricate part of it, you know. Can you elaborate a bit more on what made Desert Storm successful? Okay, well, <clears throat> Schwarzkopf was originally a Vietnam veteran, right? And initially he saw that the ideas, the way the soldiers acted, alienated the Vietnamese around him. And as he was promoted to general, and he was originally, when he was promoted to general, it was back in 1989 or something, they were saying that they were convinced that the USSR was going to do an invasion. And Schwarzkopf said, no, I don't, I'm not worried about the USSR right now. I'm worried about what's going on in the Iran-Iraq wars. This is when Iran and Iraq were attacking each other. And that's when things got kind of crazy. And I'm trying to, wait, 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 hold on. And let me see, because at that point, oh, okay. So I guess there was an issue where Kuwait told Saddam Hussein that if Saddam defended them from the Iranians or something, Kuwait was going to give Saddam his oil or something. So there's something like that. And then, okay. um, and then that's why that Saddam was angry about what Kuwait did to him. That's why Saddam invaded Kuwait. And <clears throat> Schwarzkopf, you know, being a, you know, sort of a Vietnam vet, he was afraid of kind of domino theory of this. I know, I think the King of Jordan tried to be a mediator between the Kuwaitis and Saddam, and Saddam didn't want to let, let anything down. So Schwarzkopf was like, no, we got to operate right now. We got to be fast about it. We don't want this thing to get out of control. So, you know, when he initiated Desert Storm, he also said that he wanted the soldiers to be respectful of the you know the islamic beliefs that the people down there were um, believing you know he wanted them to be more you know in touch with that he didn't want it to be you know people being alienated like they did the uh the vietnamese back in the vietnam war so there's little things like that that schwarzkopf kind of understood that you know it it, it was much he he was the right guy at the right if somebody else it wouldn't it wouldn't work you know <clears throat> What I changed think, to the second invasion? Um, I think what changed is that the bureaucracy after 9-11, it was more of a jerk reaction than anything. I also mm. think personally, and this is something I didn't find out until way later, Saddam was trying to abandon the petrodollar. And their whole thing was, we need to maintain our fiat money, which is backed by the petrodollar. And we need to invade Saddam because we don't want any economic issues. That's just the same reason that Gaddafi really got invaded. Gaddafi wanted Africa to adopt one currency known as the African dinar, and he was supposed to be the guy at the forefront of this. And the U.S. is like, no, we got to stop this. And that's why. Uh, have you ever heard of Liberty Dollars? <clears throat> I haven't. Okay. 
So I believe there's this guy back in like 2010 or something. He was a huge Ron Paul supporter. He decided to make his own money. And the feds eventually got to him and arrested him. I think they put him in jail for however many years. That's why the guy who created Bitcoin, Satoshi, nobody knows who he is. There's a reason. Because he didn't want to get arrested? Yeah. Because, That's crazy. <laughs> because, because the U.S. used to be backed by gold. They used to have gold-backed currency. But Nixon adapt, uh, got us off of it back in the 70s during the, during the Vietnam uh, War. And he said it was going to be a temporary suspension. And then it led us to fiat currency. And now, now we're having problems because of that. Because now people are asking questions like, well, if the government, if the Fed can just print out as much money as it wants, why do we have to pay taxes? You're, you're, they're asking the inappropriate question. So things are going to get very interesting. Maybe, maybe not. We'll see. We'll yeah, see it's funny because they're just hoping that that $1,200 bonus check just kind of shuts everybody up. Yeah, yeah. Um, I actually had a conversation on another podcast. I said that in America, if they always want to give you something to prevent you from doing anything, and that, that's definitely what it is. Because <clears throat> it's not like 1984 where there's a totality. Because if they did that, if it was like 1984, we would all rebel by now. But now it's let's yeah. give us a little bit, have us compete against each other, you know, and things they, they hope things will just blow over. So we're in a very interesting time right now. It's going to be interesting to see how this all plays out. Yeah, especially because people like uh, Jeff Bezos just made like $24 billion in the last couple months off this pandemic and everyone else is going broke. And you're like, how is this possible? Why is this happening? Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't know if it was that purely in stock value or I don't know, Amazon's such a weird company. Well, I think a lot of it just came from the fact that since people are at home more, they're ordering more stuff off Amazon. They're getting because, more. I mean, have you ever looked at Amazon stock? No. Okay, How I much mean, is it yeah. worth? Well, I mean, it's not so much that it's worth. It's like they don't really pay dividends. They don't really do things that a, a strong stock should do. Like... A lot of people like buying Amazon for other reasons. I personally don't because I'm just kind of, and just the way Silicon Valley does certain things, you know, everything is not, they don't care so much about revenue. It's just about worth. And the worth is just a fictitious number. You know what I mean? It's not liquidity. It's not cash. So I feel very strange about Amazon. It's like when I found out Delta was a business that operated paycheck to paycheck, like it was such an eye-opening thing. And sometimes I wonder if Amazon does have it as together as well, I think it maybe I think they do, but it's just I, I wonder sometimes. There's there's certain little questions I have. I just checked out their stock. They were at eighteen hundred dollars per stock in December, and now they're at twenty four hundred. So they've okay. gone up six hundred bucks in a couple months. But I mean, how much? Pandemic. But how much is the percentage in dividend? Hmm. Because here's the thing, here's it, like, when, when they don't have, have a like, dividend, yeah, you're right. They don't have dividend, yeah, I mean, that, that would probably be why it's so off of it. So, it's what you're talking about with the airplane, it's kind of funny how as soon as this pandemic started, it's like all these companies, all these large corporations are about to fail, and you're like, you yeah. don't have a couple months of savings like the rest of us, yeah. That was such a that's a very eye opening thing. <laughs> oh my gosh, like the fragility of, of everything, yeah. Yeah, I mean, not to harp too much on this, but like this is kind of we're entering like what they call like eight stage capitalism, where capitalism kind of fails itself. Well, I mean, it's it's kind of weird because it's so much of it is cronyism, so much of it is you know they pay the lobbyists and the, the lobbyists go to the, the senators and the senators get on the board of directors and it sort of mutates into this weird thing because it's, it's definitely a mixed economy it's not free market bailing out bailing out delta isn't free market you know what i mean this yeah. is something else this is some sort of i mean some people called it anarcho tyranny some people called it whatever but it's just it's it's not i, I get what you're saying but yeah it's it's a very strange time yeah i mean like even some of our old very right-wing presidents like ronald reagan would probably be really pissed right now like how just how everything is in general Mm -hmm. these people like all these um people who are very much pro free market and like love capitalism Mm -hmm. 
and then they just like accept how the market is like right now and it's like this is totally not what people wanted 50 years ago this is this is like very skewed dystopian stuff mm-hmm. yeah well I, I don't think ronald reagan could have predicted that billionaires would have bought 40 houses at a time and drive them. yeah cost of pricing so high that nobody can pay for rent and now you have people who have jobs who are on the street ronald reagan would have wouldn't have, there's no way he would have supported that no. so i mean there's there's a lot of weird things that there's a lot of things I haven't had the imagination for that I, you have to see it. And even seeing it, you're like, wow, this is what it is. This is crazy. Yeah. You know? And it's definitely hard to envision what the future holds for us because, I mean, 10 years ago, nobody would have imagined iPhones being such an important part of most people's lives. Mm-hmm. And now we, like, every single person has a phone in their pocket and, mm-hmm. you know, just everything like that where technology moves so fast and it's hard. It's really hard to predict the future because of that. I also think it's it's hard for people because it used to be you could you know grow up trying to have a job that your father had and it was a set thing, but now things are changing so fast you can't even go to college for a certain type of field and then your field is obsolete by the time you graduate and there's so much uncertainty all the time and not not everybody can hack it. Right, because only like three percent of people actually become like financially free with before the age of 60 i think that's the number something like that but basically it's really hard to even follow the the way that our and like our family members our older family members used to do things because you can't just go to college and get a job after because you might just have to work at like a fast food joint just to even survive and you know, the idea that student loans you can declare bankruptcy to get out of them and there's there's no set path everything is going to be an experiment and they're going to look at you like you're a loser if it fails but if it wins you're like oh you're the enemy but you have to play that game and some people can't accept that game well it's also taking that jump a, too yeah but it's like you're promoting a book on a discord what does that mean da, 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 da. you know <laughs> it's, it's so alien to them yeah speaking of that can you talk a little bit about your website and your book? Okay. So my website is kingfirepower.net. It is a website promoting my graphic novel. Initially, it was a full-on screenplay, but we're going to do it in five different issues. Um, issue number one comes out fall of 2020, hopefully, everything, all things being equal. Um, it's about a princess named Mina, and her kingdom uh, gets under attack by these sort of invader people. And what the lucky thing for Mina, though, is that her uncle is this time traveling wizard and he's been stockpiling like these modern assault weapons. And Mina decides to defend her kingdom using these weapons. So it's sort of like, I don't know, like Die Hard with Dragons or Lord of the Rings meets Rambo, that, that kind of a thing. So it's a, it's a definitely a really cool graphic novel. I have the first four pages on the website, kingfirepower.net, if you guys want to check that out. Um, it should be on Comixology again in fall of 2020. So are you going to get the first issue out soon? Yeah, yeah, fall 2020. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, how yeah. much are you charging for that? Um, I mean, we're debating on pricing. Um, I'll probably want, because it's like 20 pages, it's probably going to be $9.99. Um, I'm, I'm thinking about whether or not I should go to Indiegogo to you know, either sell it or begin the uh, financing of issue number two. But it's, it's definitely something we're very excited about. The, the artists and I who are working on it. So yeah, it's, it's, it's yeah, I'm it's on your good. website now. It, the artwork is really, really good. And it looks like a fun story. Plus this dude has a gun, which I'm not, I was kind of not expecting that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, it's, cool. It's... Well, um, I appreciate you coming on the podcast and talking about this and I hope your book does well. All right. Thank well. you very much. Mm-hmm. And our outro music today is provided by Kudasai. It's called a light of mine.